Hey, Stuart here. As Work on New Episodes continues, and I promise the work is ongoing, I wanted to share a podcast with you that I'm becoming more and more a fan of. It's called Obscure History, and it's hosted by Josh. Now, the mutual interest here probably seems pretty obvious. We both like stories that are not as well-known or obscure. So while you wait for me to get it together and finish a new story, enjoy this episode from Obscure History. It was first published on August 23, 2021, and it details what Josh calls the worst football game ever played. All other episodes of Obscure History can be found anywhere you get your podcasts. It's that special time of year. The summer sun is slowly starting to fizzle out. The morning air is beginning to become crisp again, and football is just around the corner. There are a few things in this life that I love more than football. Professional, college, high school, I don't care. If it's on, I'll watch it. However, this thing that brings so many people so much joy has some incredibly dark skeletons hiding in its closet. This is your first warning. This episode is going to be messed up. My name is Josh, and this is Obscure History. I am very excited for football to return. I get so giddy this time of year. The NFL season hasn't officially started yet, but the excitement is there. We all wait with bated breath to see how each team's draft picks are going to shake out. Will these fresh players be the next superstars, or will they crash and burn like so many rookies before them? Are these new coaches going to prove themselves as effective leaders, or will they crumble under the pressure? Will Joe Burrow's legs look correctly again? Who knows? And I'm definitely not the only person that feels this irrational excitement. American football is tremendously popular. Over 100 million people tuned into the Super Bowl last year. Over 60% of Americans self-identify as a football fan to some degree, and nearly 50 million people played fantasy football last year alone. That's crazy. But why is football the top sport in the U.S. rather than baseball or soccer, which seem to dominate the rest of the world? Some of it's just luck. Football is played during the fall and winter months when people are less likely to be outside and are more likely to be indoors watching television. And speaking of television, American football is the perfect TV sport. Soccer is pretty interesting, but can get a little repetitive to watch. Ice hockey is really cool, but the puck is super hard to keep track of on our TV screens. And even though baseball is very fun to watch live, it is unbearable to watch on television. In contrast, football hits all the right sweet spots. It's got bursts of action, followed by periods of time that are perfect to fill with instant replay and analysis. If you're just learning the game, you can probably pick it up extremely quickly by watching an NFL broadcast, because after almost every play, there's some sort of explanation as to what happened. And there's some great camera work to illustrate exactly what the commentators are talking about. It really has become America's pastime, but it wasn't always the titan of culture that it is today. In its earliest forms, American football was basically a bunch of college kids playing a modified version of rugby, and people died playing it. Like, regularly. 
Students who were attending some of the nation's most prestigious universities were snuffing out their brilliant potential for the love of this wild game. It was so dangerous, in fact, that President Teddy Roosevelt had to step in and threaten to outlaw the game before it was made more safe. Whereas before it was just a group of guys sprinting towards each other, smashing heads without any kind of protection, after President Roosevelt's threats, the game evolved new rules and techniques to better ensure player safety. Some of these rules and techniques are familiar to us today, like the forward pass and the line of scrimmage. It would be a few decades before the sport would be fully legitimized. The Pro Football Hall of Fame notes of this particular time in football history, Athletic clubs that sponsored a great variety of sports teams became a popular phenomenon in the United States in the years immediately after the Civil War. One of the sports the athletic club embraced was football. By the 1880s, most athletic clubs had a football team. Competition was heated, and each club vowed to stock its teams with the best players available. Toward this end, some clubs obtained jobs for star players. Others awarded expensive trophies or watches to their players, who would in turn pawn their awards only to receive them again and again after each game. A popular practice was to offer double expense money to players for their services. Since football players were supposed to be amateurs, these practices were questioned by the Amateur Athletic Union, but for every tactic declared illegal, a new one was developed. Though the game lived in relative obscurity throughout the 19th century, it began to find footing in mainstream culture by the early 20th century. In 1920, the National Football League was established with Jim Thorpe as its first president. In this first year, the original teams were the Akron Pros, Canton Bulldogs, Cleveland Tigers, Columbus Panhandlers, Dayton Triangles, Chicago Tigers, Decatur Staley's, Racine Cardinals, Hammond Pros, Muncie Flyers, Buffalo All-Americans, Rochester Jeffersons, and the Detroit Heralds. The 20s were a time of fluctuation for the league. Many teams dropped out and fledgling teams from small towns attempted to weasel their way into the sport, but were usually unable to sustain their endeavor for more than a year or two. By 1932, familiar names like the New York Giants, Green Bay Packers, and Chicago Bears had secured their place in the league and have yet to relinquish it. The 30s saw continual growth, and by the 40s, more familiar names emerged. The Washington Redskins, as they were called then, the Pittsburgh Steelers, Philadelphia Eagles, and Detroit Lions were all part of the 1940 season. However, there was a schism in the world that was happening. World War II was raging across the Atlantic. Despite having a fairly normal 1940 season, the league dramatically shrunk after the U.S. joined the fray in 1941. Teams disappeared from the league as men who would normally be battling for their team on the field were instead battling for their country in a far-off land. Though the NFL took a huge hit, football was still a very popular sport throughout the war. Not only did college football continue to entertain people desperate for a break from the anxiety of global conflict, but soldiers who were once football players back home began hosting football games abroad. Regular American servicemen, as well as active professionals on their tour of duty, played football overseas to keep up morale. In fact, the first ever game of American football in Ireland took place on November 14, 1942 at Ravenhill Stadium in Belfast. Teams of U.S. Army servicemen adopted names like Hale and Yarvard and played in front of an estimated crowd of 8,000 excited fans. 
There was also the Spaghetti Bowl, which was a football game played between the 5th Army and 12th Air Force in Florence, Italy, on the 1st of January 1945. The game was played mere miles from the front lines. Legend has it that when the wind shifted, the players could actually hear the rumble of gunfire from the battle. Also, allegedly, a correspondence was picked up from the Germans by the Americans that said, Rome was destroyed while its inhabitants feasted. So too will the Americans be destroyed while they play football. But I have to emphasize that this is unsubstantiated. The official report is that the game was kept completely secret. There were many more of these foreign bowl games throughout the course of the war. Some even became a sort of reoccurring tradition, at least for a brief time. And that's wholesome, right? It's fun to bring a piece of home to a far-off land. However, one of those games was not so wholesome. And buckle up, this is going to be one of the most disturbing episodes I have ever done. But before we get to that, we need to pause for about 90 seconds for an ad break. Alright, so maybe you decided to take the plunge and start a podcast. Maybe things are going really well with this podcast and you're ready to start monetizing. If that's the case, let me tell you about Podcorn. Podcorn is my favorite way to find sponsorships. It is unmatched. Podcorn is a marketplace that connects podcasters to amazing sponsorships directly. There's no middleman. You can browse through sponsorship opportunities right there in the platform, and you can reach out to whatever sponsor happens to be there. There's opportunities for host-read ads, interview segments, topical discussions, and much, much more. You never give up any of the rights to your podcast, and Podcorn is there to support you and help you every step of the way. The Marketplace's mission is to give podcasters transparency, creative freedom, and full control of how and when they monetize. Click the link in my show notes to sign up at Podcorn and start browsing sponsorship opportunities today. I'm not sure if you noticed, but I said something kind of controversial a few weeks ago. I said that you could draw clear moral lines when studying World War II. And while I still firmly believe that there were nations fighting for a just cause and those fighting for pure, unadulterated human wickedness, I need to expand that thought a bit. War is hell. It always has been. It always will be. There are things that happen hidden behind the fog of war that the public is not always aware of at the time. The dropping of the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki is one of the most consequential points on our human timeline. From that moment on, humanity changed forever. Every nation had to come to grips with the fact that there exists in our world a weapon so massive it could cripple an entire country in a matter of minutes. Everybody knows about the atomic bombs. But have you ever thought about what the bombs actually did to Japan? The National World War II Museum describes the bombing in vivid detail, and this is your final warning. This episode is going to be very dark. At 9.14am Hiroshima time, the Enola Gay arrived over the city. The Aoi Bridge, which bombardier Thomas Farabee used as an aiming point, was clearly visible through the plane's bomb site. Farabee took control of the bomber and opened the bomb bay doors just after 9.15 a.m. Farabee released Little Boy from its restraints and the bomb fell away from the Enola Gay. 
the plane jumped nearly ten feet at the sudden loss in weight. Tibbets immediately resumed control of the plane and banked it sharply on a 155-degree turn. He had practiced this difficult maneuver for months because he had been instructed that he had less than 45 seconds to get his plane clear of the subsequent explosion. Not even the scientists who designed the bomb were sure if the Enola Gay would survive the shockwaves from the blast. Little Boy fell almost 6 miles in 43 seconds before detonating at an altitude of 2,000 feet. The bomb exploded with the force of more than 15,000 tons of TNT directly over a surgical clinic, 500 feet from the Aoi Bridge. Less than 2% of the bomb's uranium achieved fission, but the resulting reaction engulfed the city in a blinding flash of heat and light. The temperature at ground level reached 7,000 degrees Fahrenheit in less than one second. The bomb vaporized people half a mile away from ground zero. Bronze statues melted, roof tiles fused together, and the exposed skin of people miles away burned from the intense infrared energy unleashed. At least 80,000 people died instantly. From the Enola Gay, Tibbets and his crew saw a giant purple mushroom that had already risen to a height of about 45,000 feet, three miles above their altitude and was still boiling upward like something terribly alive. Though the plane was already miles away, the cloud looked as if it would engulf the bomber that had spawned it. Even more fearsome to Tibbets was the sight of the ground below. At the base of the cloud, fires were springing up everywhere amid a turbulent mass of smoke that had the appearance of bubbling hot tar. The city they had seen so clearly in the sunlight just a few minutes before was now an ugly smudge. It had completely disappeared under a blanket of awful smoke and fire. In the minutes, hours, and days that followed the bombing, survivors in Hiroshima tried desperately to locate loved ones and care for the thousands of wounded. Some people exhibited horrible burns, while others who outwardly appeared unscathed later died painful deaths from radiation poisoning. Thousands of people were buried in the debris of their homes. Most structures in the city had been constructed of wood with tile roofs. All but a handful of concrete structures in the city center had been completely leveled. To the American public, the dropping of the bombs was presented as the crowning achievement of American military tech. President Truman acknowledged the bombing of Hiroshima to the public by soullessly stating, 16 hours ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima, an important Japanese army base. That bomb had more power than 20,000 tons of TNT. It had more than 2,000 times the blast power of the British Grand Slam, which is the largest bomb ever yet used in the history of warfare. The Japanese began the war from the air at Pearl Harbor. They have been repaid many-fold. And the end is not yet. With this bomb, we have now added a new and revolutionary increase in destruction to supplement the growing power of our armed forces. In their present form, these bombs are now in production and even more powerful forms are in development. 
the perspective of the Japanese wasn't offered to the American public. And if you listened very closely and attentively to that statement from President Truman, you'll notice that neither was the truth. After the bombs were dropped in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Japan was a place where the veil between hell and earth had been rubbed thin. In an interview for Time magazine, Yasujiro Tanaka, a survivor of the Nagasaki bomb, gave his testimony. He recalled, I was three years old at the time of the bombing. I don't remember much, but I do recall that my surroundings turned blindingly white, like a million camera flashes going off at once. Then, pitch darkness. I was buried alive under the house, I've been told. When my uncle finally found me and pulled my tiny three-year-old body out from under the debris, I was unconscious. My face was misshapen. He was certain that I was dead. Thankfully, I survived, but since that day, mysterious scabs began to form all over my body. I lost hearing in my left ear, probably due to the air blast. More than a decade after the bombing, my mother began to notice glass shards growing out of her skin. Debris from the day of the bombing, presumably. My younger sister suffers from chronic muscle cramps to this day, on top of kidney issues that has her on dialysis three times a week. What did I do to the Americans, she would often say. Why did they do this to me? I still have a lot of pain in my long years, but truthfully I've lived a good life. As a first-hand witness to this atrocity, my only desire is to live a full life, hopefully in a world where people are kind to each other and to themselves. Similarly, Amiko Okada, a survivor of the Hiroshima blast, recalled, Hiroshima is known as the city of Yakuza. Why do you think that is? Thousands of children were orphaned on August 6, 1945. Without parents, these young children had to fend for themselves. They stole to get by. They were taken in by the wrong adults. They were later bought and sold by said adults. Orphans who grew up in Hiroshima Harbor had a special hatred for grown-ups. I was eight when the bomb dropped. My older sister was twelve. She left early that morning for work on a Tatemono Sokai site and never came home. My parents searched for her for months and months. They never found her remains. My parents refused to send an obituary notice until the day that they died in hopes that she was healthy and alive somewhere, somehow. I too was affected by radiation and vomited profusely after the bomb attack. My hair fell out, my gums bled, and I was too ill to attend school. My grandmother lamented the suffering of her children and grandchildren and prayed, how cruel, how very cruel, if only it weren't for the picadon. This was a stock phrase of hers until the day that she died. The war was caused by the selfish misdeeds of adults. Many children fell victim because of it. Alas, to this day, us adults must do everything we can to protect the lives and dignity of our children. Children are our greatest blessing. The amount of human suffering caused by the atomic bombs is immeasurable and indescribable. It was also almost certainly unnecessary. The general consensus among modern historians is that even though you've probably heard that the bombs were a means to an end, and that it saved millions of American lives by ending the war sooner, they were in fact not needed. And there were people who shared that same thought even at the time. 
In his memoir, President Eisenhower said, In 1945, Secretary of War Stimson, visiting my headquarters in Germany, informed me that our government was preparing to drop an atomic bomb on Japan. I was one of those who felt that there were a number of cogent reasons to question the wisdom of such an act. Similarly, Fleet Admiral William Lehigh powerfully remarked, The use of atomic bombs at Hiroshima and Nagasaki was of no material assistance in our war against Japan. The Japanese were already defeated and ready to surrender because of the effective sea blockade and the successful bombing with conventional weapons. The lethal possibilities of atomic warfare in the future are frightening. My own feeling was that, in being the first to use it, we had adopted an ethical standard common to the barbarians of the Dark Ages. I was not taught to make war in that fashion, and wars cannot be won by destroying women and children. So maybe you're wondering how football ties into any of this. Well, you've probably never heard of it, but six weeks after the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, American servicemen would add insult to the nation's massive injury. In the weeks leading up to New Year's Day, short advertisements began appearing in some of the nation's biggest newspapers. December 28, 1945. Atom Bowl is newest in grid classics. And now it's the Atom Bowl and a gridiron cleared of the scorched rubble from the atomic bomb, the world's first Atom Bowl football game. New Year's Day will match two American service teams. Marine Lieutenant Angelo Bertelli of Notre Dame fame and Navy Lieutenant Bill Osmansky, former Holy Cross and Chicago Bears star, will captain the 211s from the 2nd Marine Division, which is on occupation duty in the Kyushu City where the second atomic bomb was dropped. You heard that correctly. Six weeks after the United States decimated Nagasaki with the most destructive weapon ever used in warfare, American servicemen cleared away a football field from the rubble and hosted a football game. The game was required to be two-hand touch rather than tackle because shrapnel and glass still littered every square inch of the city. On New Year's Day 1946, a couple thousand servicemen filled the makeshift bleachers to watch a good old game of American football. Young Japanese cheerleaders were brought in to offer further entertainment. To cheer for the men who represented the blinding death that swept away their homes and families less than two months prior. The game was organized by United States Marine Corps Reserve Colonel Gerald Sanders, who was the division's recreational officer and had played collegiate football at Louisiana Tech. The drama was heightened by the men selected as team captains, Angelo Bertelli and Bill Osmansky. Bertelli was a college football superstar. When he walked on the field to play for the Notre Dame Fighting Irish, he was tall, thin, and awkward. After a coaching shuffle, it was decided that rather than playing a tailback, as he had throughout most of his football career, he would move to a position that we would probably call quarterback today, and things immediately improved for the young man. As a sophomore, Bertelli led the nation with a 56.9% passing average, racking up 1,000 yards through the air as well as 10 touchdowns. For modern football fans, these numbers are shockingly small, but at the time, Bertelli was revolutionizing the game. His success continued through his junior year until he was activated by the Marine Corps Reserves six games into Notre Dame's 10-game season. In the six games Bertelli started in, he threw 36 passes, completing 25 with 10 touchdowns. Bertelli's six-game 1943 performance was enough to win the Heisman Trophy, earning 648 votes. 
He was informed of his Heisman win while in boot camp. Though he hadn't yet broken into the big leagues, Angelo Bertelli was a well-known man among football fans. Championing the other team was Bill Osmanski. While Bertelli was a rising star, Osmanski was already shining brightly. A first-round draft pick by the Chicago Bears in the 1939 draft, Osmanski led the league in rushing his rookie year with nearly 700 yards. By the time he enlisted in the military, he had already won back-to-back-to-back national championships with the Bears, and was a household name among sports fans of all varieties. Before the game, the two captains met and agreed that they would throw the game and the end result would be a tie, so as to not damage anyone's morale. However, this did not happen. Bertelli recounted the game to the Pittsburgh Sun-Telegraph in 1946. The article reads, Finally, in the last quarter, Osmanski's Navy team scored a touchdown, and Osmanski came through with the extra point. The Navy scored another touchdown, making the score 13-all. It was Osmanski's job to miss the extra point, and Angelo Bertelli was grinning across the line at him, completely satisfied with the happy ending. Well, Bill Osmanski stepped back and booted the loaf of leather precisely through the goalposts, causing Bertelli to erupt with such caustic remarks as, Hey, you dirty double-crossin' so-and-so, and etc. Osmanski strode toward Bertelli, busting with apologies. Gee whiz, Angelo, said Osmanski, wearing a perfectly straight face. I didn't mean to kick that extra point. It, it, he fumbled, was a mistake, I tell you, Angelo. It didn't look like a mistake to me, replied Bertelli. But it was, went on Osmanski. It was an act of God. Either that, or a force of habit. After the atom bomb, the soldiers moved on with their lives. Bertelli recruited some of his company to the Los Angeles Dons when they returned stateside. Osmanski returned to Chicago and won his fourth consecutive championship. And Japan would rebuild in what is one of the most miraculous and unbelievable stories of the 20th century. The story of the Atom Bowl would be covered by the enveloping dust of time, and football would explode in popularity in the 1950s and 60s. And today it gives joy to so many people myself included. But this year, as we are enjoying our fantasy football leagues and watching the Pittsburgh Steelers once again disappoint me in the playoffs, let's do so with the memory of the Atom Bowl in our minds. Because no matter how hard we try, American culture will be forever tied up in the tragic things that we do on the battlefield. Alright, we've come to the end of this terribly depressing episode, but before I get much farther, I want to remind you that today's episode was brought to you in part by the Abridged Presidential Histories Podcast. Now, I don't cover the presidents because my whole shtick is that I only cover the obscure, but if you want another high-quality podcast about history that is maybe not so obscure, the Abridged Presidential History Podcast is exactly what you're looking for. I listened to some of their episodes recently, and the scripting is airtight. Honestly, uh, I'm like a bit of a stickler for writing, and this podcast is very well written. The performance is really engaging, and I honestly, guys, like, if, if you like this show and you want to find more history that's just, like, not obscure, seriously, go check out the Abridged Presidential History Podcast. I'm going to put a link in my show notes. Um, If you want an especially good one, I could recommend the William Henry Harrison episode. 
because I am distantly related to him on both sides of my family, <laughs> which uh, I don't exactly know what that means for my genetics, but it could explain my crooked spine and various neuroses. <laughs> um, but honestly, guys, follow that link in the show notes. Remember, when you check out the people that I recommend to you and the products that I recommend, it not only introduces you to amazing new shows and products, but it also helps me out because the people that I'm recommending you to definitely are keeping track of who checks out the stuff. <laughs> that was probably needlessly confusing to say. But anyways, seriously, cannot recommend that podcast enough. It is very well written, very well performed. Okay, um, as always, you can go to ObscureHistoryPod.com and you can go to the merch store. Free shipping has ended, but still every purchase goes, um, a portion of every purchase, I should say, goes to support UNICEF, because unfortunately there are lots of children in this world that need help from an organization like UNICEF. And I wish that it wasn't that way, but unfortunately it is. Um, so I'm going to, uh, I don't know if you remember a couple weeks ago, I was talking about trying to figure out something to put out on Thursdays. I think I'm going to have to put that on the back burner for the time being, because I just got a new job, which I'm very excited for, but it is going to take a lot of my brain power and the learning curve I think is going to be fairly steep. So I think I'm going to just devote any extra brain power that I have towards figuring out that so that I don't like do a terrible job and get fired. <laughs> uh, so Thursday show is on the back burner, but I did collect some good ideas and some of you guys reached out with some really interesting um, thoughts. So I hope to someday return to a twice a week release. Um, but for the time being, I'm going to have to probably just hold off. And that's probably okay. I would rather give you one good show a week and keep my job than produce two bad shows a week and be a terrible employee. So <laughs> hopefully you'll understand. If you don't and you want to yell at me about it, you can do so on the social medias. Uh, Twitter at all the people pod because they don't let you change your username. Instagram at obscure history podcast because they do let you choose your username. And you can always write in at obscure history pod at gmail.com. I read every email. This is still an organization of one, so I am my own PR department, <laughs> as well as my own researcher, writer, host, and editor, unfortunately. Someday I wish to be big enough that I could um, pass off some of these duties to somebody that is better at them than I am, particularly, this, particularly the social media duties, because I do not like social media, even for myself. So doing it for the show, um, I see the benefit, and I have made some really cool connections with some of you guys, but man... It's just exhausting and most of the time not very fruitful. So, <laughs> um, okay, let's uh, let's wrap this up real quick because it is once again 1230 and I've got things to do tomorrow. All right, so this is an extra special indie music feature that requires just a little bit of explanation on my part. The song is called Silver. The band is called Nutty Noise. And um, one of my like weird unofficial summertime resolutions was to stay in touch with my friends. <laughs> I'm really bad at that. And uh, this is like the digital age, so it should be super easy. But what actually kind of inspired that resolution was I saw one of my friends from high school had started streaming on Twitch at EV Kiyoshi on Twitch, if you're interested. Um, like pretty much every day of the week, they're on there streaming Pokemon. A lot of the times I'm in the chat, so you could come talk to me, watch some Pokemon. It would be a great time. But um, what's really interesting is that 
Nutty Noise is like a music collective that my friend is a part of, as well as a fellow streamer that I've started watching um, called Our Goddess on Twitch. I'm in the chat there sometimes too. And I was like scrolling through their music library on Spotify or whatever. And um, it's a very diverse catalog, right? So they've got like some trap, they've got like some pop inspired hip hop stuff. <laughs> I'm definitely not the authority on any of this particular genre of music. Um, but like speaking in musical terms, it is super well produced um, and it's really good music. Uh, this song is maybe not the most representative of their entire catalog, but if you like this at all, seriously, go check them out. I'm going to put a link to their stuff on Apple Music in my show notes. Um, so without any further ado, here it is. This is Silver by Nutty Noise, which is produced by um, Our Goddess and uh, my friend Evie Kiyoshi's here on vocals. So if you want to support them further, um, you can check them out on Twitch check out their music, check out all the links. I've got so many links, I'm going to lose my mind. Go ahead and leave If that's what you need I'll just smoke my weed Grab some kerosene Light up everything Even the gasoline I'm going down a flame Sip until I lean Don't remember anything Except everything About you and me If everything I do is gold Then why is this getting old? Mm. Cause I'm silver but I'ma get it yeah, I'm silver, but don't regret it I never won the race, always end up second place If I learn from my mistakes, why can't I forget your face? Silver, yeah, I'm silver Yeah, oh. Finding inner peace By loading up my peace Torture legs. My stress is leaving me Set all my demons free We exercising We keep chasing the dreams Even when failing Because I still believe I can't do anything Even if I don't succeed do is gold why does the shine not feel so bold cause I'm silver but I'ma get it yeah I'm silver but don't regret it I never won the race always end up second place but learn from my mistakes why can I forget your face silver yeah I'm silver I'm silver, I'm silver 